It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is November the 12th in 2022, and my guest is Joshua Sigala. Joshua is the co-founder of Standard.io and the co-founder and CEO of Voltoro. The Standard offers over-collateralized stablecoins backed by gold, Bitcoin, and Ethereum. First in this episode, Josh and I will talk about recent events surrounding the collapse of FTX, the crypto trading platform. This is unusual for this podcast because we rarely talk about recent events, but I just think these events seem to hold very important lessons for the topic of the podcast, which is the intersection of regulation and innovation. And secondly, we'll talk about stable coins, CBDCs, and Josh's mission to create a privatized and decentralized gold standard for the 21st century. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Nicholas. It's wonderful to be here and talk about these important subjects. Great. Josh, you have an unusual background. How did you end up doing what you do now? I found Bitcoin way back when there was probably a thousand people in the space. And, and it was around 2010, late 2010. And this was because I was already looking at alternative economies. I, I built the world's first swap site where people could swap clothes and I soon realized that swapping is a terrible way of doing business <laughs> because it relies on two parties coming to a perfect synergy when there is an entire marketplace around. So if you have a wonderful t-shirt that I really love and you go through my list of things that I'm giving away and you don't like any of it, then the deal falls through. Yet there's a whole marketplace of stuff that you do like. And so obviously giving you money <laughs> or a debt or a credit or something would make that whole function a lot more fluid. And so I started looking and this was around 2003 and I was looking around and thought, I wonder if there's some sort of internet money outside of PayPal. I just was looking cypherpunks, what they were doing. I stumbled across some of that research a little bit later on. Nothing seemed to solve that double spend problem. And so I ended up giving up on the idea and just kept it as a pure swap site. And then in 2010, I found Satoshi's paper and, and yeah, it, there it was. Satoshi had solved that problem of double spending. I fell right down that rabbit hole ever since then. And there's even YouTube videos of me as a young whippersnapper telling people that Bitcoin's not a scam. <laughs> and uh, telling people why it's not a tulip bubble and all of this stuff. Then Mt. Gox happened. And this comes to why this FTX thing is so important right now. When Mt. Gox, which was the very first Bitcoin exchange collapsed, a lot of people lost more money than most people get in a lifetime. And that 
that process though has allowed the community because there's this philosophy of fixing things with code, fixing things through the mechanism of, of anarchy, of rules, not rulers, and voluntary rules. So if one exchange has a certain rule set and I like that, then I should use that exchange. And if another doesn't, then I shouldn't use it. And so after that collapsed, my brother and I sat down and thought, let's build a decentralized exchange. So we started to think, how do we do this? And Ethereum didn't exist yet. Bitcoin was was not broad enough to code a decentralized exchange with the op return codes, which are the programming language behind Bitcoin, didn't allow for that really. And so we focused on the transparency instead and built a transparency protocol called the Glassbooks protocol that anybody could come along and audit the exchange in real time without knowing much about else. And and so we built this glass books protocol and we launched our own exchange, which was then also just Bitcoin and physical gold rather than Bitcoin and fiat. Cause I was like, let's price things in gold rather than fiat. That's <laughs> why I got into this to get away from fiat. Yeah. We're pricing it all. Yeah. And now we're here, but that, that, that process of building, building the exchange because of Mt. Gox collapsing, I think this is exactly what's going to happen post FTX is that the decentralized world, the DeFi space is going to explode a lot more, not only because it's vastly more efficient than the legacy TradFi traditional finance space. It will also give these guarantees, not guarantees, it's nothing's a guarantee because it's still code, code can still go wrong, but it, it allows people to audit the code and see the rule set as codes rather than man-made fallible laws. Great. Yeah, you're already jumping into some of the debates that I'm really looking forward to right around what will ha happen after FTX and creative destruction and the market selecting for better rules and for better governance. So let's get into that. Let's talk about FTX. Can you give a summary of your read of the recent events and your key learnings from it? And feel free because you started already doing that, you have a lot of experience in that industry, put it in historical context. You already said it's not the first time, right? So did you have a bit of a <laughs> Groundhog Day moment? It really was. And actually, it's something that happens constantly. The whole reason we have interest in banks is because originally people would d deposit their silver. It was just too heavy to carry around to markets. They would deposit it at a vaulting facility. They would give them a receipt and, uh, and then they would take that receipt and eventually, instead of going back to the vaulting facility to trade it for silver and then go to the market, they would just go to the market with the receipt and trade that. So then we have paper money. And eventually these vaulting facilities realized not everyone's going to come back at the same time and collect their silver and gold. So let's just, if someone comes and wants to borrow some, we just write them a receipt without the actual silver because it would need everyone coming back from a bank run. And, and so... It, it's historical. If you have a centralized system that holds value, and this is a bearer-based instrument, Bitcoin is a bearer-based instrument, just like gold or silver. And if you give that to a bank or an exchange, there is a very high likelihood that they could use it because it's very lucrative to hold, to speculate with those funds and go into a fractional reserve. And this is the, the whole system is even called the fractional reserve system. So to, to then bring back that to the context of, well, move forward to Mt. Gox, it's exactly what happened is I don't even think a lot of these exchanges are so complex. There's so much going on 
that it's even hard for the people running these things to see in real time that there are issues. And, and this is why transparency protocols are really important because it allows the crowd of users to continually keep an eye on the balance sheets and the health of an exchange before and then raise red flags and allowing the operators to, to quickly figure out what's going on because maybe there was a hack maybe there was a rounding error that's happening so fast that it's actually not a rounding error anymore it becomes extraordinarily big and as we all know if you have debts in crypto like bitcoin if bitcoin skyrockets there's no way of paying that back some of the old lending protocols for instance there was one called btc jam that lent people Bitcoin when it was around, I don't know, a hundred bucks or something like that. And some kid borrowed like 40 Bitcoin and then it skyrocketed to a thousand. And the poor kid was coming back every week like, oh, here's another couple of grand. He was never going to pay that off. These things happen. And that's why I think transparency really is key. Great. So how do you read the events around FTX? I can maybe also start with some of my key learnings or observations. So FTX is an exchange led by somewhat iconic founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, who's been, some people call him the darling of the establishment. Other call him the savior of crypto because he's not that anarchic anti-establishment type. He's courting DC politicians and regulators and celebrities. And he's donating to political causes, to effective altruism. He's a philanthropist. So that gave him that certain persona and possibly access to regulators and DC politicians, right? And he's the second biggest donor to the Democratic Party after George Soros. And now it turns out that he was massively running malpractice in his exchange. Yeah, that really stood out. There was two things that really stood out, or more actually. But one thing was the rise and fall of this empire. This guy came out of nowhere. And I always wondered, how did this young, frizzy kid get from nothing to where he is? Beating out Kraken and Coinbase, these established players, actually just wiping the floor with them really quickly. I always figured... There's something, and I still don't know what, but it's impossible, imp very improbable, I should say, <laughs> that a bunch of kids living in the Bahamas that are all having relationships with each other and just a strange frat house environment can beat out establishments like Coinbase. And, and the second thing was that it's very interesting, and you touched on it, that this character that had total malpractice within his corporation... And he's not a dumb kid. He's obviously a very intelligent guy. But that that someone that was malpracticing so much yet was calling for the, the strongest regulations that anybody in the industry calls for and also donating, like you said, to, the, to a political party, I find it very sort of Randian in terms of Atlas Shrugged, sort of these titans of industry using regulation to protect themselves from competition and to also almost bribe, bribe is, it's the wrong word in official language, it's lobby, but effectively it's the same thing. You're saying, here's some protection, some sort of buffer, you won't go directly for me because I'm paying you. Yeah, I don't want to sound too conspiratorial, obviously, but 
if you really break it down to the building blocks of how business works, this is typically how business works. And Ayn Rand really saw this a long time ago, wrote a whole book about it, yeah. about how industry gets uses yeah, that yeah. to protect themselves. Yeah, I mean, many things just stand out for me, even if you don't put like a initial lens on it, like you and I have, right? Sort of thinking about regulatory caption, things like that. But many people's reactions was strangely, oh, doesn't that show that crypto needs more regulation to prevent this? And if you dig a little bit and FTX was advertising on billboards all over like Miami and major, many major cities, hey, we're the safe regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin and other digital assets. Mm. Isn't there yeah. something strange going on? There's this interesting phenomena where people just sort of say, oh, regulation, more regulation is needed. But that's such a, it's such a weird thing to say, because what sort of regulation? I mean, that, that's, it's like saying all medications are safe. Hang on, what? No, like you, you can't just make these blanket statements. Being at conferences where people have stood up and said, raise your hand if you think the crypto space should be more regulated. And everyone puts up their hand and I'm like, can we be a bit more refined with that question? What does that mean? This is why conversations like this are really important because we try to go more into the minutiae of that definition. We discussed this several times in the podcast. When people say regulations, they typically mean one specific kinds of regulations, which is government regulations. And as is, mm. that's the only way to make rules, right? But there's plenty other ways, right? There's morals, there's customs, there is markets, right? There is common law. There's all sorts of forms of regulations, right? But that conversation yeah. is always biased towards that one kind of regulation, which is as, again, let's not try to put a lens on it, but it's not always efficient, right? And not always the right solution. And I think you can make almost anyone agree with that, right? So for example, like mating, who you marry, right? Nobody would agree that there's a, it's good to have governments regulate who you can mate, right? Even though that's yeah. actually extremely influential when it comes to your life prospects, when it comes to your financial success, your health, and fundamentally uh, equality and inequality, mm -hmm. right? So marriage choice is actually one of the main drivers of financial inequality, right? Because people have now more opportunities to marry other people with the same status. Be interesting, wouldn't it, if the government married people off and then I could imagine if everyone was assigned a partner and then people were discussing, why should the government do that? Imagine it would be anarchy if people could choose their own partners. How would ugly Alf find a partner? He's so ugly. Without the government, how would ugly Alf ever find someone? <laughs> this is the sort of similar arguments. I guess. The point is that we accept private markets, we accept custom, we accept morals in all sorts of parts of our lives. So we need to have a nuanced debate whether government regulation is the right solution in that case without yeah. assuming too much about it. But just to get back about Sam Bankman-Fried for a second. So I want to put three hypotheses out there that explains why he did what he did, right? Number one, he's caught in a web of false beliefs. I think you saw mm -hmm. that in the, the debate with Eric Warhees. He just couldn't articulate or answer to certain questions. And he seemed actually almost genuine. So he has some kind of pro-crypto beliefs and others that are not, that are in conflict and just seemed not 
to have thought these through. So that's just one theory. Yeah. The other one is he knows he's in trouble and wants to fend off competition, like the regulatory capture argument. And the third mm. is he wants to give actual malpractice the appearance of legitimacy. So which mm. of those three do you think could be good candidates? Yeah, I think it's three and one. You know, Eric Voorhees has had, he's been in the game uh, about as long as I have, uh, probably maybe even longer, that there is this, he's had literally so long to articulate and think about and meditate on all of the ideas and read a lot about the ideas of private law, of anarchic markets, of free markets, of competing currencies, of permissionless systems, all of these things that, that he's built arguments for for a long time. So obviously, when Eric came, stepped up to the plate, his arguments were extremely articulate, very calm and precise. Sam's, on the other hand, are almost impossible to listen to. I have seen someone cut together and take a lot of the ums, ahs, reversals, and all of these other things, and actually make his arguments succinct. And that was good because you could actually understand where he was trying to come from. But yeah, you could definitely tell that he hadn't thought about them very much. It was like he was processing the answers on the fly. And this just a isn't a very good to way to debate anybody. <laughs> Obviously, you want to research the other person's beforehand and come prepared. But also, there's a definite regulatory capture process there that it's almost the free market has allowed me to come become so big. And now I want to capture it. Now I don't want to allow other competition in. It's really unfortunate because I do feel he does seem like this guy that does want to help in a way. There was some companies like Celsius and he wanted to go in and bail them out. He didn't. And maybe some say he shouldn't have because obviously he was using customer funds rather than earnings to bail out some of these failed businesses. So yeah, it's, it's a bit of both. What um, do you think? I mean, I think it's a mixture of one and two. I struggled or I'm a bit biased against seeing malice. Right. I think it's more lack of thoughtfulness right. and coupled with perverse incentive. Uh, I almost feel for the guy when I see him and in the debate, like he just, he just struggled. There was this one point in the debate where Eric pointed out, it's very complex to regulate DeFi correctly. And you're mm -hmm. one of the smartest person in the industry. And you're saying you're not entirely sure how to do it. That tells you something. It tells you maybe you shouldn't do it. He almost took like a minute to recover and take a breath against that point. Hey, what am I doing here? That was great. That was amazing. Yeah. To see that they actually step back and think for a second rather than just speak. Yeah. There will be hopefully good books written about it. And I think in some cases it will show it will some tragedy, some human error, like a thoughtfulness. And mm. hopefully he seems like a nice guy. Maybe he will recover from it and learn from it. Right. Yeah. I tend to agree that I don't want to see malice where there isn't any, some of the times it's literally, it's also not just him. There's a team of people. And if, unless you're micromanaging, which you can't at that scale, you can't keep up with everything. Yeah. And like I stated in the start, sometimes the, these systems are so complex, it's hard to see through. It's hard to see the forest through the trees. It's almost impossible until after the fact, but you should definitely have systems in place to be able to look at balances and see if something's off, 
let's just pause for a second. Exactly. I, I do feel one thing I'd like to point out is that CZ isn't an innocent man in this whole downfall. I think he ex exaggerated the entire thing and sped CZ everything up. CZ is the CEO of Binance, right? That's right. Yeah. Because uh, basically it started off with Coindesk finding, doing a little bit of digging and finding out that, that their hedge fund was using customer funds to bail, well, to bail itself out. And, and then uh, that caused CZ to maybe make a move. And he, I think there was this learning from Elon Musk because Elon went to buy Twitter and then really destroyed them publicly to hopefully drive the price down. Unfortunately, he'd already signed commitments for a certain price. So he couldn't back out of that. This is a typical VC thing. When you're seeing a good startup, you try to drive them down a bit to, to say, oh, it's not that good. You try to drive the price down. It's a normal thing. But I think what CZ did there was go straight online and say, we are liquidating $2 billion worth of FTT token, which is the token of the F FTX. Because he didn't say because, I think he just hinted towards it. And of course, that what did that do? That created a massive panic. And, and because FTT was basically backing a lot of their loans as collateral, it caused a massive cr credit crunch on the behalf of, of the FTX empire and, and caused the downward spiral, some the death spiral, really. It went out of control. And then CZ was like, we might bail you out. And then, no, after seeing the books, we're not going to. Now, this is, a, if you see it from his, a very clever way of destroying it even further because you, A, you destroy the competition, but B, maybe he still will purchase the uh, the ruins after the fact. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting, in a way, market-led correction, right? Because it wasn't like external third-party oversight that said, there's something fishy in your books. It was another market player, right? Yeah, and this is really how it should be. In fact, and that's why I constantly say the more transparency, the better just for yourself. And this is the cypherpunk's ethos was always transparency for the powerful and privacy for the weak. And I think there's something so powerful about that statement because all this technology that we're building could really be used to enslave humanity. CBDCs, uh, you know, blockchains are totally transparent. Anybody can see anything unless you're using quite complex maths like Monero does to obfuscate transactions. There's a split in the road here that we can, we have to decide, or maybe we don't decide, but we, the market needs to decide where it's going to go and maybe it'll go both ways. That's what I hope because both ways just, I, I, and I feel, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Nicholas, but I feel that that's also your standard that competition in regulatory environments is best. So I don't mind if CBDCs are there as long as they allow for an exit door into a decentralized world that is regulated by mathematics because that competition says, hey, if you guys screw up, with, I'll, I'll use the CBDC. It's better. It's, I can pay all my, my things in that and force across the whole geographical region. But if you guys screw that up, <laughs> There's, the next, there's an exit door, which I'm willing to take. Yeah, exactly. I see no problem with governments providing products or services that freely compete with others. If the argument is that they can do it better because it's like a public good or something, or they can more effectively ensure that it's safe, something like that, and they will be having a good, posi have a good position in the market, right? I have no problem with yeah, that at yeah. all. 
The problem yeah, begins when they say others, you're not allowed to do that. Only I'm allowed to do that. Yeah. And we saw East Berlin. My, my father grew up in the DDR and the government was the ones that supplied cars and you almost had to register at birth your car to get the Trabant built by the time you're 16. And you see the inefficiencies there. Yet, I think if there was at least a little bit of competition, maybe the state would have tried a bit harder to build a system to get cars out on time. Yeah. To add one final point to the debate, even if we've seen a positive market correction, what did suffer is trust in the industry, right? What do these exchanges do? I think that damages the industry as a whole. So I think the necessary reaction in the crypto industry should be to improve, right? Because it's understandable yeah. from the point of view of a layman, I don't, the regulator or private market, whatever, like this thing, like uh, people lost money and I don't want to be exposed to that risk, right? Yeah, effectively, this is what has happened in the crypto space is that every time there's been a major attack, whether it's a hack or whether there's malice or not, it's this concept of anti-fragile systems where, hey, there's been a hack or there's been an attack. This competition is going to go, let's fix that. And they bring out a, a better system. And then there's a government systems which say, hey, there's been a hack and attack. Let's build stronger laws against that, but not actually fix the underlying problem. Let's just threaten that if anyone takes advantage of that loophole, then they will go to prison. This to me makes no sense that it's much better to fix the underlying problem than to just threaten people with time. Exactly. The point is that that's good in theory, but it also means we in the industry or people in the industry have to roll up our sleeves and actually build better solutions because otherwise it's not going to be credible to people. With that said, let's talk a bit more about your work. So what problem are you solving with the standard.io protocol? Yeah. So in, in 2015, I went to Uruguay and, I, and we started talking, I gave a talk about how these algorithmic stable coins were were very scary because I've seen them before. It, uh, Terra Luna wasn't the first one. It, there was um, there was BitShares, Waves, there, there's a whole bunch of them um, and all of them have failed. And for the people at home that don't know what an algorithmic stablecoin is, there is one token that is defined as $1, let's say. And what they do is they say, we're going to put something in the back end here that is valuable to $1. And if you if this goes under a dollar, you can just have the underlying asset, which is worth actually a dollar. And so what these, <laughs> what they do is say, Hey, we've got this governance token. Let's say it's worth 50 cents. We've got two governance token locked up backing this $1. And if the governance token goes down in value to say, let's 10 cents, then let's just print 10 of them and put them in there. And now there's 10 of them back in still $1. So if, you, if it goes below, you can have 10 of these. Almost like governments but printing money, right? There's seriously no difference. In <laughs> fact, Terra Luna, once it goes well on the way up, as all prices are going up and does super well because, hey, you need less and less of these things to back $1 because the value of those things are going up. The problem is you can't go up forever. What goes up must come down. And uh, every kid knows that at the playground. And so it's about, it's about finding real value to lock those things up. So what the standard does, and in fact, let's just finish off on the algorithmics. What happened was that Terra Luna started losing value, started losing credibility. The market started dumping the underlying asset like crazy. 
they had to keep printing more and more, and they ended up printing ins of these things because it was uncapped and it was algorithmic. So the algorithm was just printing, printing. And it, it got so out of control that Venezuela started to be jealous. So it's, it's really one of these things that it just doesn't work. And as an old gold bug, I, I fundamentally know this. You can't back something with nothing or with fluff. The idea behind the standard.io is to really allow people to lock up rare assets that, that the protocol cannot control. So either Bitcoin or Ethereum, these assets that are rare numbers. And for the gold bugs out there, Bitcoin is a rare number. There's only so many of them. I know that's a weird concept, but that's what it is. It's a rare number and there's mathematically only so many. And gold is a rare metal. If you have, let's say, a thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, you, instead of selling that because you believe it's going to go up in value, you can put it into a smart contract and that smart contract belongs to you. You are the only one with a key to that. Once you lock those assets, and you issue yourself, let's say you put 10,000 in, you can issue $5,000 worth of debt to yourself, which is a, also an interesting concept that you can issue debt to yourself. It's like a pawnbroker without the pawnbroker. It's just a smart contract. So you're putting assets in and locking it. Now you can't get, there's more value locked up than you've borrowed. And the great thing is it's great for capital gains tax because you haven't sold anything. You've literally borrowed some money just happens to be that you've borrowed it from yourself. And the standard focuses on having zero interest on that. And we'll get into how that's the, the pegging mechanism works later, but a zero interest and no time limit to paying that off. But to get that collateral out, which is valued more, you have to pay back that loan. We're starting with euros. So it's S euro. You have to send back the S euro. And once you've sent that back, you can, you can withdraw that. And if you can't, and this is one of the interesting things that we're focusing on is how to build fina legacy financial system products in a better way. So if you can't pay that back, you can actually sell that collateralized debt position as an NFT. NFTs don't have to be pictures of monkeys. They're basically a, a token in, that you can follow around the network. It's non-fungible. And so you can represent anything as an NFT. So you could say, hey, I've lost my job. I took out all this money to borrow against myself, but there's more value locked up in the smart contract that it sucks just sitting there and I need liquidity right now. I'll sell this debt on OpenSea or something. And then someone can buy that, pay off the debt and pull out the collateral that's worth more. So these are really interesting ideas because imagine in 2008, you had collateralized debt positions locked up by bank, by the banking system with subprime mortgages. And banks would take those, chop them up, revalue them as AAA, and then chop those up and sell them. And the people buying them would chop them. And so, so, so at the end, you wouldn't know what's in there. You're buying this, this, this collateralized deposition that would earn a yield, but you don't know what's in them. Uh, with what we're building, it would allow people to sell these debts and maybe even chop them up and repackage them. But a computer program could easily look through all the trees and see, ah, that's what's in those debts, exactly that. And, and so really interesting because you can not only, maybe you don't only just use Ethereum to lock up, to get, to get a, a loan from yourself. You could also lock up liquidity tokens. So if you put tokens into an automated, automatic market maker, you get return with a, with an LP token, which a liquidity token, which represents a receipt for the liquidity you've put in. So that's earning you a yield because 
these market makers are just going back and forth in these liquidity pools, making the market. And, and if you could use that as a collateral, it means now that these CDPs are also, you could lock it up, borrow from yourself, and they're also earning a yield within that. And then if you sold them on, there's so much amazing stuff. We can regulate with mathematics and it allows so much efficiency that the legacy system cannot compete. And I see that, that in the future, most liquidity will head into DeFi purely because DeFi removes a massive amount of inefficiencies from the market. And so why would you not use it? The money is going to move around the friction. We just have to make sure that the smart contracts are properly audited and stuff because these are complex things. Yeah. Can you say or make the case for a stablecoin in general from the perspective of a user? Why should they use stablecoins? And users don't have too much financial knowledge. It's just why is it better than the existing alternative? We've run Voltoro, which is a Bitcoin physical gold exchange since 2015. And we've had a lot of freelancers that we pay to, to do certain jobs. Since launch, we had a lot of them always, they were always invoicing in Bitcoin. And later on when Ethereum came out, Ethereum too. And after a while, around 2020, they started invoicing in Tether, and which is a stable coin pegged to the USD. And it was, I always asked, why do you want to get this weird, this terrible fiat backed centralized stable coin? And they said, look, if I, and it always came back the same answer. If I give my accountant another Bitcoin invoice that's changed price like crazy and they have to research what it was and there's 30 invoices, they're going to kill me. This way I can invoice you for a hundred bucks. I get a hundred bucks and my tax accountant has fun. Oh yeah, checks it off. It's good. The balance sheet's nice and balanced. And, and I can then personally go and buy the speculative assets, buy some Bitcoin, buy some Ethereum with that later. So it made a lot of sense, but also no one knows how much a carton of milk costs in Satoshis. <laughs> they know how much it costs in euros, in Turkish lira, in shekel, in, in US dollars, in Australian. They understand how much it is in their local liquidity. So that, that's why I think stablecoins are the future of the blockchain technology. Now. That's one reason why someone might use stablecoins. But the second thing is, if, if you get paid in stablecoins, it allows you this whole process, like I mentioned, this whole DeFi space to earn a yield, to earn interest at a far superior rate than the legacy system. Because the legacy system has so many steps in between. When you put money in a bank, uh, first of all, it's their money. It's legally their money now. They pay you an interest rate for that privilege. But then they also, they also give that to maybe a third party, that third party gives it to a fund, that fund gives it to someone else to maybe, and then they get it, give it to a market maker who will then try to earn a yield, hopefully earn a yield, and then give the earnings of that yield up the tree until it finally gets to you. And then you get that piddly after paying every middleman along the way, get, you get that tiny little scratches of interest at the end, which doesn't mostly doesn't cover, especially for the poor, doesn't cover any fees for the banking applications that you have. It allows people to, instead of doing that, just put money directly into an automated market maker in a liquidity pool that's earning yield by adding liquidity for traders, which is effectively what, what you're doing with a bank just through a thousand middlemen. And the third one is if you're actually borrowing from yourself using something like Maker or the standard.io is that if you borrow from yourself, and this is what the wealthy have done forever, the wealthy have, during inflationary cycles have gone to the bank and said, I, I want to borrow a whole lot of money 
because I feel inflation's coming. But I want it at fixed interest, and I don't want to reevaluate the loan if we go into a hyperinflation or a new currency is issued. I want in writing that you stay at this valuation. And because they're wealthy, they can afford to demand this sort of thing. The normal person can't go into the bank and say, I demand these. The bank will just laugh you out. And, say, no. so, and why do they do that? They do that because right now, maybe they take a loan, which is effectively shorting the currency that's being inflated. You take a loan, buy out all these properties, real value, forestry, property, gold, whatever you, what, whatever's rare. And, uh, and then maybe you spend, I don't know, $10 million. And then in 10 years time, that buys you 10 cartons of milk. So you've effectively bought all this property for the value of 10 cartons of milk in the future. Now, imagine in like this, we're doing at the standard.io is allowing people to have interest-free, fixed rate, interest-free loans so they can borrow against their own assets and they have the private key. They hold the private key for that. And, and then inflation starts to pay off their debt effectively. So that's another reason why somebody should use, would like to probably use yeah, a yeah. DeFi or, or stable. I mean, price. it's two arguments really you're making for people. One is you should have or transact in cryptocurrencies simply because we can build a better financial system. We can eliminate a lot of intermediaries. We have high rates of privacy, of security, and government can't mess too much with it. So it's probably... We could also build a better hedge against inflation in an inflationary world, right? I think not everyone will buy that argument simply because it's a kind of a bet in the future that it will be a better system. I'm convinced of it, but I don't yep. expect everyone else, right? Hey, many of these things and most of these things you can already do with the existing legacy system. If you want to go into it, start small. Great. And then the second yes. one is, okay, if you bought that argument, you want stable coins because you want to use it for everyday transactions. And there's all sorts of financial instruments you need to use that need to have kind of a stable value that they're underwritten by. Great. Third step, how does your protocol, the standards, you've already compared it or pointed out the flaws of algorithmic stable coins. How or what's the, what argument does it compete with when it comes to other stable coins? Yeah. So there's obviously the algorithmic stable coin, which we've talked about the flaws in that concept. There's also centralized stable coins like USDC and Tether and such. And some would say CBDCs, but let's just focus on the private centralized stable coins. In a way, I find them very interesting because they're easy. You effectively lock up. You put a dollar in the bank and you issue one ERC-20 token for that dollar. And you say, anytime you come to me, uh, I will pay, I'll pay you this dollar and you can take it. Now, just like an exchange, FTX, you are trusting that custodian isn't going to go into fractional reserve or invest that money badly. So you always have to have some sort of transparency protocol in place to say, there is, there is definitely 16, like a billion dollars sitting in that bank account. And there's a billion tokens flying around or less tokens, more value locked up than less tokens. The thing is, there's two layers there of transparency. First, the company issuing the ESC 20s has to say, Hey, there's exactly this much money sitting in the bank, but we all know that banks are absolutely intransparent. There's no way to tell how liquid the bank is until we have a crisis like 2008. So maybe that bank is speculating like crazy. They're totally in fractional reserve, legally in fractional reserve. So they're off speculating with these funds. The crypto world speculating with the funds represented by the funds that are being speculated in the legacy. So, so what could go wrong? So we have just speculation on speculation. And this is why it's very scary. But there's also scary because there's regulatory risk. Let's say somebody does something really bad 
with Tether and the government just says, oh, that's enough. No, it's illegal now. And it freezes the billions of dollars in the bank. All of a sudden, the entire economy that's based around one single uh, failure point, which is this corporation, could collapse. And that, and there's all sorts of contagions that would collapse with that single failure point. So I'm not a very big fan of a single point of failure within that. It's okay if you can have hundreds of different centralized stablecoins, at least they're competing, and it's fine. I don't have a fundamental problem with it, but there are these problems that I'm pointing out. That That's the interesting thing. And we've seen just recently, there was a service called Tornado Cash, where people, if anyone's used Ethereum, if you ever pay someone with your Ethereum wallet, that person can very easily just look oh, look into your wallet and see all the NFTs you have, all the money you have, all the different weird tokens you have. They can see everything. Even if you've got it in different wallets, if you've got some clever software, it'll tell them everything about you. Now, this is this gets very scary. First of all, if you're a business, you don't want your clients to know how where you're sourcing the product you're selling them to because they'll just cut you out and go directly to them. So it's, this is not very good for that. But also, they then they see the markup. They start feeling ripped off. Let's say you've got employees. Every employee can see how much everyone else is getting paid. This causes a lot of anguish, infighting. And then there's the danger side of it. If I could go to my corner shop and buy a bagel and the guy says, oh, wow, he's got 10,000 bucks in his wallet. Boys, and they call, it calls the guys around the bike, beat you up, take your wallet. It's dangerous. So what Tornado Cash allowed was people to send transaction in there. It would mix it with a whole bunch of pe other people in a smart contract and then spit it out into a new into a new wallet. So you would never know what's in there. Now, the State Department of the U.S. Treasuries found that there was some bad people putting money into this and mixing it and then sanctioned it. And USDC, which is a centralized stablecoin, basically froze all of the stablecoins that had ever touched Tornado Cash. This is very, again, one of these attack vectors, just like maybe the banking system going down or anything like that. It's attack vector because it has contagion effects. For instance, Maker has a whole lot of this USDC locked up as collateral. Suddenly, all that collateral is worthless because it's been frozen. There's real problems with these centralized things. And I do believe that generally central banks don't like competition. They'll deal with intercontinental competition. But within the own geographical region, they like to have a monopoly. And so once CBDCs come out, I can imagine them saying, we have no need now for USDC. So they'll just make that either buy it up and amalgamate it or they'll make it illegal. And, and so, yeah, that, that's the issues behind the, those stablecoins. And we could talk about CBDCs as well, if you wish. Yes, yeah, sir. Sure. CBDCs are effectively a centralized settlement layer on the banking system. So right now... Uh, so it's done by central banks, yeah. right? CBDC, yes. central bank, digital currency. Exactly. And there is some wordplay here, just like in anything that gets a bad name, they'll just change the name of it. The Federal Reserve is talking about having an instant settlement layer right now. Everybody knows that the road to hell is paved with, with good intention, but also with convenience. And, and so it's all about convenience right now. But let's just step back a bit. If I'm in America and I want to send money to your bank, basically the bank will calculate all of the sending across the four or 500 plus banks that are in the US. 
And at the end of the day, they won't know what each individual transaction was. They'll just go, okay, my bank sent $10,000 to your bank and your bank sent 9,000 to my bank through all sorts of different transactions. Let's just settle that 1,000 difference and that's the end of it. So th this is the settlement layer within the Fed. And what's good about this system is that there's one layer of obfuscation of privacy so that the Federal Reserve doesn't know every single aspect of what's going on. And you have a contract with your bank to say, hey, you need to keep my transaction history private. And so what happens, what I could imagine happen, what many people warn of is that if we head into a, into a centralized settlement system, now all of a sudden, every single transaction goes through the Fed. We don't have this sort of obfuscation of your transactions through independent banks. Now, every transaction goes to the Fed and, and gets settled in real time. So if we have another lockdown, because that's now a thing, it was usually just for prisons, but now it's for everybody. If there's a lockdown and, and you're not allowed to move because there's some sort of virus, your money is programmably can be told that you can't spend your money outside of one kilometer, kilometer radius of the bank. And then maybe there's other things. Maybe there's a massive calamity in, in the banking system or a financial crisis. And they say, we need to stimulate spending. And they're already trying this in China in, in small use cases with their CBDCs is to program a, a validity date to your money. So you have to spend this within three months, otherwise it, it expires. So your savings start to expire. So this will stimulate the economy because, hey, you can't save it. You have to spend it. Yeah. Uh, we all know that where that know, so, argument is going. And there's a lot of economists who actually stand up for that and say, that's amazing. That's what a great function. Yeah. And I can understand some of them for some reasons, some of the time. So I think there's nuanced debates to be had, but to the point that we had before, let it freely compete. Yes, absolutely. I'm all for it. If that's one thing. And this is the beautiful thing about the cryptocurrency space is that you can try economic theory without the threat of violence. Russia had built gulags to, to deal with communism. They wanted to try out communism. They had to really force people into that system. With us, we tried in the cryptocurrency space, tried a coin called Freicoin in the early days. And this was what was called a demurrage coin, which meant that it would charge you the longer you held it. And this was to see if people wouldn't hold as much, would have more velocity in economic terms to the money, that money would flow more and that would be, make it a better currency. In fact, everyone thought oh, it was being developed. Wow, this is going to be amazing. And it, it went sky high, the price, and then just, just died. And it died very quickly and just flatlined because no one wanted to, no one wanted to actually be paid in this because every week it was losing value programmatically. And this is so wonderful about the spaces that you can try this stuff out. You can voluntarily say, Hey, I really believe in this. I'm going to buy that. Mm. But if it's mandated by a state onto everybody, it can be very dangerous. So if I may summarize or hypothesize, correct me if I'm wrong, what distinguishes <laughs> the standard stablecoin protocol from others is one, it's choice of underlying assets right? Gold, Ethereum, Bitcoin, two, or in conjunction with that, sort of the algorithm on top of it. And thirdly, the mode of governance, right? So it's not by one centralized organization. It's done by... A yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's done by DAO. There's also 0% interest. There's also these functions. These, it's, very, it's a modern version. It's a next generation version of what MakerDAI started. It, it allows the selling of dead, but also having functionality within 
the collateral so it doesn't just have to sit there. And it's multi-stablecoin output. It's not just the US dollar. We want people to be able to mint the currency of their choice. So that's really important as well, is that we don't have this model of just the USD within the crypto space. Can you talk a bit more around governance? So you, you met, why did you choose a DAO? And just to put my bias out there, I find it sort of an interesting form of organization to experiment with, but at the same mm. time, a lot seemed to me too much about different mechanisms of voting. And I'm not yes. inherently have anything against voting. It just seems to me, oh, I don't see why we've not already tried different forms of voting that weren't mm. possible already with current systems or systems in the past or tried out different forms of governance. My belief or my confidence that there's something in there that could 10x the way we run things isn't as strong as for other things. I'm curious. I want to see more experiments, but at the same time, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I find this is actually one of the biggest problems with DAOs is voter apathy, that people just hold the governance token, hope for the moon, and they don't actually come and participate in the structure. This is a big problem. And this is something that I've been fascinated with for a long time, because I do find DAOs interesting for one reason. Let's say, I don't know, this water here, they have this beautiful water company and, and they have to spend a lot of money marketing and making business development deals and trying to get it happening in a centralized unit. They've got a big department. They have to lift their prices to make sure they can pay everyone. There's a few companies that, that actually do marketing without that. Nike, Adidas, some of these sporting brands, because people will voluntarily wear the brand right smack back on the top of their head or in the shirts, and they'll have a whole army of people that are passionate about that brand going out there telling other people. But that's very rare. In a DAO, though, and a DAO is kind of this mixture of socialist philosophy and capitalist philosophy mix in a way, because you're allowing the users to actually profit share in the success of the protocol, which I find fascinating because now you can also have that army of people interested in the success of it. Yeah, they might not come and vote every time, but they will definitely go, hey, you should use that protocol because of these are the virtues of it. Of course, it's not a panacea. Obviously, you get all sorts of people telling you, maybe trying to sell it in a bad way or whatever. But that's, that I find interesting that you have a vast amount of people actually moving forward to do business development. Saying that, there is this funny thing that it's not always true. So for instance, when I left Australia 10 years ago I for Germany, I was already into Bitcoin. I was pushing it like crazy. Roger Ver was still on team BTC and he was going from shop to shop. Man, you've got to accept Bitcoin. You've got to, uh, all, all the whole Bitcoin community was out there going, yeah, you've got to accept Bitcoin. We were up against a lot of problems like Silk Road and the brand name was all very drug marketplaces and the news loved to trump out those sort of headlines because it's clickbaity. So we were up against it, but I expected that in a few years time, everyone would accept this thing because it's so amazing. The virtues are so huge. What happened when I went back a few years later is that Alipay was everywhere. This strange payment mechanism from China was all over Queensland, was all over in New South Wales. You could just pay with Alipay. And I was like, how did they do that in a year or three in three years? So it doesn't work every time. Alipay obviously had a big centralized unit of business development that would go door to door and make deals and make incentives to accept Alipay and the rest of it. So that doesn't work all the time. But I do find it very fascinating to have the users actually profiting, being part of the revenue share of the thing. And I can say one last thing on that point. 
when when Oculus Rift first came out, the VR headset, the very it was sold on Kickstarter. And Kickstarter had thousands and thousands of people come and put some money towards this. They raised a bunch of money. They built the very first headset. What did those people get? You know what? They got the very first sort of test headset with all wires half coming out, 3D printed. It was really dodgy. And then Facebook bought Oculus for billions of dollars. And those early investors saw nothing. All they had for it was a shitty first generation dodgy headset that didn't quite fit or work. So what is the moral of the story? The moral for me is, hey, wouldn't it have been great if they could have owned a part of that in a way? And in a way, regulation has is a little bit to blame for that because how dare someone without being an accredited investor be allowed to buy into a startup? And so there is problems in that. But in a second way, I think technology allows for that. And this is why it's really important that we don't just call out all ICOs as scams because it's just a function. It's just a mechanism. It's ways of it's educating the market of what does a good ICO look like? What does a good token sale look like? That's, I think yeah. there's actually a perfect example for the kinds of problems that DAOs could fix, right? I think in Germany, there's a discussion now about ESOPs, employee share options, right? <laughs> And I think there's a similar debate, in the, not a debate in the United States, but it, you need to execute certain legal actions. And there's some restrictions that are intransigent for sort of the average employee to see the money that they're entitled to get with the promise that they have a share in the company and the success of the company, right? So that's mm. something that DAOs and tokenization could just make much easier or more transparent. Hey, you got this token in the beginning you're entitled to do with it whatever you want, or you have these and that rules that could very well. And I think there's very big potential to make it better than the existing system of employer share options in Germany, for example, or anywhere else. Absolutely. And it is effectively more liquid because employee share options are only beneficial once this company might sell to a higher bidder and buy the stock or publicly float or something like that. So if you have stock options in a company that, or share options, sorry, then you might not see any benefit of that because it never gets bought up by a higher bidder or something like that. At least with a token, you can there is an open market for it with a free floating price already. Yeah. yeah but, it, but the interesting thing that you brought up, and I think we touched on it, is the idea of voter apathy and people not actually coming along and not actually participating in the structure. And I think this is, again, where competing and philosophies of competition might play into that. There are ways to get around that, but some would see that as corrupt. So some DAOs pay their users or reward their users for coming in and voting. The problem with that is people just come in, click whatever. They don't really research. They just click whatever because they know they'll get a reward afterwards. And so you tend to get bad information out of that. One of the, one of the things I'm very interested and passionate about is the idea of prediction markets and how we can have gov governance structures based around predictions because prediction market, there's a lot of there's a lot of academic research to show that it is one of the best ways humans have of determining the future. It's it's quite yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, I that, actually had Robin it, Hansen on the podcast in episode two talking exactly about that. I'm also a big fan of prediction markets. Robin Hansen is a hero. He's really he's really great, and I've talked to him about that as well. Because initially, the standard was going to use prediction markets to determine interest rates until we dropped the whole idea of interest rates because. I don't believe we should have a ground base level of money based on interest. But And Robin Hansen is a phenomenal thinker. 
And, and uh, so is Ralph Merkel, who's also big into the prediction market side. He's the inventor of the Merkel tree, which is used in the Bitcoin protocol and all the crypto protocols, but also just in general database functions. And so how does that work? How do prediction markets work? Prediction markets would work in that rather than saying, hey, should we deploy, let's say in the standards, the standard will collect, how the standard will launch is it'll collect a bunch of protocol controlled value. So people will put money into a pot, which creates a stability pool. And, and the community will vote on, on where to deploy that the best. Now, again, why would you vote? I mean, just hold the coin and hope for the best. But imagine if you had prediction markets to say, if we deploy it, will we get more yield and safety for the protocol if we put it the money here or than than here? And then pe people place bets. And when you place a bet, you tend to put away dogmas. You tend to get the best answers because people have to really think. If anyone's ever put money on a sports game, A, it makes it way more exciting. If you even have a dollar in a sports game, because you're like, yeah, I actually want this team to win. But you'll do a little bit of research. And they're like, oh. I don't know. This team has got a pretty bad team right now. I might put it on the other. So by putting away those dogmas, you need to find the right answer. And not only that, if there's a way to wager money, you usually get experts in a field coming saying, the whole market's pointing this, but I absolutely know because I'm an expert in this field that it's going to be over here. So they'll put a whole bunch of money on the right answer, what they perceive to be the right answer. The future comes along. <laughs> And, and it turns out that was a, as a, was a really great way of earning yield. And, and you could run like, and this is why I talked to Robin Hansen and how to define that, because how do you know which one? And we were talking about futures markets and stuff like that. But nevertheless, people could determine, oh, okay, that one actually won out. So the losers win that pot. And so it actually promotes people to participate because there's money to be made, but also it, it gets the best information out about that. But yeah, it's interesting. And I think that's not, that's just one way of having governance. There's many other ways. And again, this is why this free market is so amazing because there's ideas no one's ever even thought of yet that are. I love it. Again, episode three for those listeners who are interested in getting deeper on prediction markets and how especially you could use it in firms to make decisions, which is something that Robin Hansen, who has written extensively about, Lastly, what is your, what is the status right now of the standard.io? Are you fundraising if yet in what form and what's the argument for investors why they should invest in you? How big could this be? We've called it the standard because we really do believe this will become the standard in stable coins. And right now I believe the industry, the DeFi industry as is at a state where Apple and Microsoft were back in the beginning where Nowadays, if I was to come out with, I don't know, fruit laptops, there's no way I could compete with Apple because I just don't have the app store. I don't have the network effect of all of the applications. In fact, Microsoft couldn't even compete with their telephones, with their mobile phones, because Android and Apple had already had so much applications. Why would I buy a Microsoft phone? Their app store only has, I don't know, a thousand apps and there's billions of apps over here. I think a stablecoin protocol that's being released in, and that has every single, a mirror to every single major fiat on, on the planet is over collateralized provably by smart contracts, has all of this DeFi functionality in it that I mentioned, allows for the ultimate way of solidifying a network effect. Now, why would anyone accept any other stablecoin if they know, especially through trans transatlantic trade, if you know that 
so many more people accept a standard euro than they do, I don't know, some other stable coin. And so it's a really a race now to build network effect, but it's also a race to build serious and proper infrastructure based on sound economic theory rather than fluff and these, this nonsense of, of capital efficient algorithmic stable coins. It doesn't sound very capital efficient to lose billions of users funds to me. So the, this idea of capital efficiency using algorithms rather than actually backing up. And this is the, it's called the standard also because the gold standard, the gold standard was the state would hold a bunch of gold and issue, issue debt to, to, uh, backed by that gold. And so that that's really the idea of it and i believe that we have the right team it's the right time and and it'll be the competition against the horrific stuff that's coming out of the centralized world which is fine it, it can compete but i do believe that there are many dangers and ways to hold freedom hostage using some of these centralized mechanisms which as as an old school cypherpunk i do believe that there are better ways by regulating things through mathematics than by a certain law, which is very inefficient, open to corruption, very bad in a transatlantic outlook because it's just, just too many laws, too many different cultures. Yeah. Fantastic. Josh, anything else you want to direct attention to when it comes to your work? Where can people find you? How can people engage you? What are you looking for? Right now, we, we're basically on the 28th of this month, we're releasing the first stable coins of the S euro. So we're starting with euro because there's so many in the USD, it's fairly crowded. So we just wanted to try the test market out with that. And uh, what will happen is we build the first stability pool where people will send Ethereum or a wrapped Bitcoin, also some stable coins, and they will buy the first S euro at a discount. So they'll buy the first S euro at 80 cents. And the more liquidity that comes into the stability pool, the less that discount becomes. And it's not considered a stable coin until that discount is reduced all the way to a one-to-one. -one. And at that time, it's there'll be a bunch of liquidity that will always buy back and sell one S euro, one S euro. And then straight after that, during that time when we're waiting for it to reach, they can actually use that S euro because no one's going to buy that S euro for one euro because they could buy it at 80 cents in this initial bonding curve. What they will do is they will use the second stage of our system where people can then buy a bond, which is a liquidity bond, and, and insert that into a liquidity pool into Uniswap. Anyway, it's there'll, there'll be videos on how this all works, but it's a great yield farming opportunity. It helps build the protocol control value. It, it allows for a great way for people to be incentivized to participate. And that's what we're doing on the 28th. And you can find out more on the standard IO. You can also follow me on Twitter at J Shigala. That's J S C I G A L A on Twitter or the standard underscore IO. Fantastic. One last uh, shout out on my own behalf. Probably a couple of days after the release of this episode, we'll have the FinTech and DeFi Summit in the Caribbean island of Honduras. But if there's a small chance that you as a listener, you're still able to come by this Thursday or Friday, check out infinitavc.com to find the event. And let's build the future of money together. Josh, it was really epic to talk to you about the news, about FTX, about stablecoin protocol, and really deeply understand the need for stablecoins and really the future of governance that you're, that you're also building with the standards. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Nicholas, for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.